What's up, everybody, and welcome to another boardroom out of office. This is podcast number 37 here, as always, with my man Gianni. How are you today? I'm good, bro. How are you? What's up? What's up? Everything is good. I'm excited for today. I'm going to promise you that you're going to feel exactly how I felt when I met our first guest. So without further ado, I will hold you no longer, Gianni, but please welcome my dear friend, Miss Ariana Huffington. How are you today? I'm so happy to be here with you and to be meeting Gianni for the first time and looking forward to our conversation. I've missed you, Rich. I have missed you. And it's, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Libby, who you work with beforehand, about people who you kept in touch with throughout the pandemic, however many times you spoke to them, and that coming out of it, if we're ever coming out of it, or I guess right now, let's um, consider coming out of it, that when you reconnect with someone, it says a lot. It says a lot about, I guess, where you're at in your life, how close you still feel to that person. You know, everyone's experiences are different, so people feel different ways. But when I spoke to you last week, it brought about the same exact emotion when I first met you, which is what I hope Gianni will feel today as well, which is this incredible sense of calm. And I cannot explain why or how, but I remember meeting you for the first time at, I think it was the IVP uh, tech conference, and Kevin and I were speaking. And looking back on myself that evening, it's crazy because I'm probably hate myself for what I said on stage. I knew so little. But when I met you, I just knew I had to spend time with you and that you had this incredible sense of calm about you. I, I, do you remember when we first met? Oh, absolutely. Um, Samesh Dash, you know, the IVP partner who is uh, also on the Thrive Board, interviewed you and Kevin on stage at that big annual IVP dinner. And then after the dinner, we just met very briefly and talked. And we both immediately said, we must work together. And there was that instant connection. And then you came to my home in Soho. Yes. And uh, sat on my couch like Gianni sitting right now. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked really intimately and like we'd known each other for decades, which I love. No small talk. No and, small talk. And um, it stayed like that ever since. There is that incredible trust, you know, the sense that I could say anything, you could say anything. It was a safe space. I completely agree. And it means a lot to hear that you said that because that is exactly how I felt. And it was like, it was only that I realized afterwards that it was a lot of the basis for your work now was this sense of calm and how you had gotten to this point in your life. And we'll get to your company later on. But uh, I do want you to know for the record that that is the feeling I got. And it's the same reason that Kevin, after the plane ride we took, if you remember back from our second hang, said to me as well, like, and he hates flying, but he was like, I felt like we were all right because Ariana was just like talking me down and you don't even realize you were doing it. But just your voice, your perspective on the plane, Gianni, you know how Kevin wilds out like from any turbulence we were circling LA and it was like a bumpy 45 minute ride. And we were with this baseball player, Todd Zeal. He was bugging out a little bit. And Ariana was, <laughs> Ariana was just so chill and calm, so chill and calm. Were you always like that? Like as a child, do you remember um, being that kind of calming influence to people around you or was that not your character? No, 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 not at all. And I think 
that's a cause for optimism for everybody that we have we all have it in us we all have that place of calm and resilience and strength and wisdom in us but most of the time as you and i were talking about that first time in my apartment we are so exhausted and living our lives so breathlessly and frenetically that we don't have the time to reconnect to that place. I mean, nobody lives there all the time, you know, maybe some saint on a mountaintop. Uh, but we all have it. And that for me is the most exciting thing that it's like our birthright. We are born with it, but we spend so much time away from it. So you, so were you, um, I, you grew up, I know, um, you grew up in Greece, right? Yes, in Athens, Greece. And you moved to the UK when you were 16. Were you focused? Were you driven at that point in your life? Were you one of those young people that wanted to be somebody that every entrepreneur seems to have in common? I definitely was very focused and very hardworking. Um, but I also had an amazing mother who made me believe that I could aim for the stars but it would be totally fine if I didn't get there. And I love that because sometimes um, we all have been there when we want something and we act and feel as though if we didn't get it, life would come to an end. And I remember when um, I saw a picture of Cambridge University on the cover of a magazine in Athens. And I went to my mother and I said, I want to go there. And I said the same thing to everybody who would listen. Everybody said, don't be ridiculous. We don't have any money. You don't speak English. And it's hard even for English girls to get into Cambridge. My mother said, let's find out how you can get there. But at the same time, she made me feel that we would go on this adventure together, but that if I didn't get into Cambridge, there would be another adventure that is not like as though this was the only thing. And that was definitely the first kind of turning point in my life, you know, getting into Cambridge. That's, it's funny that you say that. I had a conversation with my mother yesterday and we haven't been speaking as frequently, which is, we can have a pod. I can come on your pod and talk about that. <laughs> but, uh, but we touched base yesterday and I was telling her a little bit about my business. And over the last few years, I found it impossible to talk to her about it because she didn't understand it. And when you're building something, it's sometimes frustrating when anyone doesn't understand it, but that dynamic with your mom is always going to be just drive you insane. So I finally started updating her and she, she said something I said, and thank you so much. And she said, Oh, I can't believe you realize that like very like sarcastically that I played a big part in your, in, in like believing in you. I did very bad in school, different from your story. I was not focused and driven. But what I do always remember from my mom was like her believing in my dreams as wild as they were and her kind of telling me like, yeah, if you want to be that, then you can be that. And if you want to be a hockey goalie, I'll take you to ice skate tomorrow and you can play goalie. And while there was no real discipline enforced in my house, which was missed, I think that is something that is not spoken enough about, which is just this like constant support, which is maybe I don't know how to tell you how to do it, but no matter what happens, I'm there. And it's interesting to hear you say that. But you did have a discipline, clearly, and you got into Cambridge. And when you got into Cambridge, 
Um, did you have a vision for yourself at that point from a career standpoint or is because you had gotten that goal? No, I didn't. Then. And I, it's good for all of us to remember that because um, if you look back at your life, I don't know if you ever do that. I actually had an opportunity to do that while I'm staying here in my home in L.A. And I started cleaning up the garage during the <laughs> during the pandemic. And I found a lot of journals um, I have been writing through the years. And and I realized that it took me a while to understand that we don't make everything happen in our lives. That life is more of a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. So in my case, my becoming a writer was a complete accident. I'm, I was elected president of the debating society, the Cambridge Union, and I did a debate on the changing role of women, which was televised. And an English publisher happened to see it and wrote to me and said, would you write a book on the views you expressed in the debate? And I wrote back and I said, I can't write. And he wrote back and he said, can you have lunch? And, <laughs> and he took me to lunch and he said, listen, I will give you 6,000 pounds to live on for a year. So it wasn't exactly a princely sum. And uh, he said, if at the end of the year, it turns out you can't write, I lost 6,000 pounds. If you can write, we have a book. So that's what happened. That's how I became a writer. I literally had no idea that I could ever be a writer. So did this person that believed in you at that point and gave you that, was that something that he told you later on that he realized there was something special about you as a writer, something that you had never really uh, cultivated? He felt that what I said in that speech, uh, which at the time was controversial, because what I said is that women should have equal opportunities, equal pay, but also equal respect if they choose, let's say, to be mothers. Let's say somebody had the ability financially to be able to just focus on bringing up their children. At the time, you're too young. You probably don't remember. It was seen as terrible, like a woman had to have a career. Otherwise, she, she was worth anything. Now, of course, everybody has gotten there. But at the time, it was controversial. Yeah. And he realized that it was a viewpoint which being expressed, especially by a woman who was young, didn't have children, it wasn't like a defending my position. It was simply wanting women to have equal respect for the choices they made. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's what I meant because, I mean, obviously him hearing you speak and him being blown away by it and, and investing in you is one thing, but there was something more, like to be able to have, especially at that time, that ability to take that risk in saying what you said, not just as probably how prolific what you were saying was, but that the time really was a rare for a woman to speak out and do that. And then when from that point on, what was the journey kind of post um, post Cambridge? So I was 23 when my first book came out and it was a, it was a huge success. It was like published in, I don't know, 40 languages, uh, so suddenly there I was um, 
I thought, you know, it would have taken me, you know, a lifetime to be financially independent for the first time, to have had a big success. So I literally had a nervous, not not literally, but I had like a mid midlife crisis, thinking, okay, is that all there is? So what's next? Yeah. And um, so literally, I locked myself up and wrote a book which nobody wanted to publish because I didn't want to write another book on women. Everybody wanted me to keep writing about women, but I was 23. I had said everything I had to say and there was nothing fresh. Yeah. So I uh, wrote a book on the crisis in political leadership. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so heavy. I have to send you a copy so you can make fun of me for the rest of our lives. Do you think, I, for, I, I gotta be honest with you, I haven't, I probably haven't read a book since I was 12. Do you think I could get through it? Is it the kind oh, of book no, that- Nobody could get through it, but <laughs> if you just read one page, you get, you'll get the point. So um, anyway, that book was rejected by 37 publishers, by which time I had run out of money, and um, I remember walking kind of depressed down St. James's Street. I was in London. I was still living in London. And um, thinking, well, maybe, you know, my first book maybe was a fluke. And uh, I walked into the bank that was in the corners, Barclays Bank, and asked to see the manager and asked for an overdraft, as they call it in, in England, you know, a loan. And again, life is full of these miracles. The guy gave it to me. I had no assets, but it allowed me to keep things together until finally I got an acceptance and the book was published. So obviously um, it wasn't a miracle. There was now a pattern in two people that had invested in you at that time. Can I just get a little context? Because I I don't know the story. I wish I knew more and I should know more. But when you say you had this like midlife crisis at 23 and you had this kind of success, how big was this um, at the time? Was this, were you a star in London or was this just in the kind of um, literature world? Are you talking? It was was pretty big. I mean, I flew to New York to publicize the book and I was on the Today Show with Barbara Walters. Oh, so you were, yeah, you, you, it was a real thing. It was was a real real thing. thing. And, you know, which is perfect because if you come from Athens and then Cambridge, you don't know what Barbara, who Barbara Walters was, which is fantastic. And you don't know what the Today Show is. So I had that freedom of, okay, here I am in New York. <laughs> and, um, and then ironically, Barbara Walters was a bridesmaid at my wedding. She and I became friends. Not yeah. then, later in life, we were reintroduced. And she's the godmother to my oldest daughter. So it was kind of ironic. How, That's amazing. How, <laughs> Our life brought us together, but we first met uh, when she interviewed me about the book. So when you got the money from the bank to make, to publish this other book, did that end up having any success? What happened from that one? No, it didn't. It it was published, but um, it got good reviews. What the French call succès d'esteem. It was a respectable publication. We've never, we've never had a guest that has said something in French yet. I mean, just so eloquent. That was beautiful. 
Well, you know, I had to learn French before English because in, in Greece, that was the official foreign language. So actually, my accent in French, Rich, is better than my accent in English. Wow. Let me say something else. Say something to me. Prove that. Um, je vous aime, je vous adore. Qu'est-ce que vous voulez encore? Oh, no. C'est trop like joli. Did you like that, um, Gianni? Was... Mais j'adore ça beaucoup. Oh, wow, moi aussi. That's amazing, Gianni. Wow. Gianni and I will have a thing going here with our French. Oh, no. I, f- I love it. I love it. Um, so the other book comes out. Not You get it published. Is there a kind of reset now in terms of what you want to do in your life? What was the mindset at that point? So I kept doing journalism at the time, writing profiles, writing opinion pieces. And, um, and then I was approached by another publisher uh, to write a biography of Maria Callas, the opera singer who yeah. became better known because uh, she, she fell in love with Aristotle Onassis, who then left her to marry Jackie. So, you know, that was the whole drama. So that's some real, that's, that's like real drama. That's some historic yeah, drama. tea. Yes. Yes. Cheers. So he, cheers. I'm having my bulletproof coffee. <laughs> she, um, so I was asked to write that book. And at the time I really wanted to keep writing big, like think pieces, like the book that didn't succeed. And, and this publisher said to me, you know what? He said, you have to learn to tell a story. Even if you want to convince people of big ideas, you can't write in this thick, dense way that you wrote your second book in. He was very direct. He said, writing this book will teach you how to be a storyteller. And, um, and I did. I wrote, Maria, I wrote my biography of Maria Callas, uh, which became a, an unexpected big success. And um, and which brought me to New York. In, and that was it. That what, year was, was how, what year was that? I moved to New York in 1980. But I didn't move because of the book. I moved because I was um, in love with a man with whom I was with in London for seven years. Just to paint the picture for you, he was twice my age and half my size. so you moved to new york to get away from him yes because he didn't want to marry me he didn't want to have children and i i was really in love with him but i knew i wanted to have children it was fine not to be married but i knew by then i was 30 and i knew hey i not everybody wants to have children i have a lot of girlfriends who don't have children they're perfectly happy but i knew i wanted to be a mother and so I wanted to put the Atlantic between us. He was very clear. He was very happy to stay with me for the rest of his life, but he only wanted to have cats. He didn't want to have kids. Oh, man. So I left, and the book was like what facilitated it because I went to New York to promote the book and never went back. That happens. That happens when you come to the Big Apple, Gianni. Yes. Um, what a, I can't believe that dude didn't marry you, and I can't believe he didn't want to have kids, and I hope he had a lonely life with cats. 
<laughs> so when you came, did you want at, in 1980 when you were thinking about having or wanting to start a family, did you still want a career or were you? Was oh, the- yes. No, no, no. There was never any time when I would not have a career. I wanted to have both and I yes. knew it was totally manageable. I just wanted women who just wanted to be full-time mothers to have equal respect. It's not what I wanted. No, 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 I understand. But I I also just in the pattern of how you were very much a trailblazer, I know that that was what you were writing about. But in 1980, maybe it wasn't as common for somebody to have been so focused, already had some success, and maybe the idea of having a family meant, well, now I'm going to park that side of my life for a while. But you never were like that, which I'm not surprised by. No, I always knew I wanted both, and I could have both. Well, I have a question then. When you came here, and you, 1980, what does New York look like? Like, what is New York? What is the media world? What is the scene here when you get here? It was a scene. Yeah, I wish I lived in New York in 19... I mean, I did live in New York in 1980. I'm bugging. I was, I was four. I was like... I had an intensely social life. I was like... I was out for lunches and dinners, and um, I was dating. I was like <laughs> Studio Fifty Four. No, not not more like um, no. I wasn't a Studio Fifty Four kind of girl. I was more like uh, Park, Ave- Park Avenue dinners and uh, and Elaine's more kind of intellectual Suarez. But it was intense. Yeah. Um, I, I I just kind of reached the point by 1984 that I knew I had to get out of New York. It was just, it had become too intense. I had written a book on Greek mythology um, and I had just signed a contract to write a biography of Pablo Picasso, the, the artist, and I decided to leave New York and uh, fly to, and come out to LA. and. Again, all my friends were saying, you are living New York. You're having this amazing life here. But, I mean, you and I have talked about that, Rich. You know about metabolizing experience, kind of knowing when a stage is over. And often, a stage is over when you're on top. Yeah. (laughs) Like, sort of everything is going great on the outside, but something doesn't feel the same on the inside. Yeah, but you know, it's funny because we do we do have these conversations and I, I am able to recognize that now um, I definitely was ill-equipped to recognize that about myself at other points in my life. But you, I know that it wasn't until later that you kind of got a different perspective on work, but you did seem to have this kind of thought process, even at a younger age, where you kind of had the foresight to say, I'm going to leave New York, it's over. It's just over, right? So um, that clearly was another thing. I'm just praising you, basically. I'm just like constantly heaping this praise on you. Um, you moved to L.A., and what's L.A. like? Because L.A. now in 1984, it's just as crazy probably as New York was in its own way. Yeah, but I moved there to have a, quiet, a quieter life of writing. And uh, by then I'm 34, and um, I had a close girlfriend who actually just died, unfortunately, Anne Getty. 
um, in San Francisco, married to Gordon Getty, you know, the oil man. And, and um, she came to stay with me in L.A. And she said, you know, it's time for you to get married if you want to have children. So I remember she took out a yellow pad and started writing down <laughs> people she considered eligible for me to get. That's a good friend. That's a very good friend right there. That's a very good friend. I remember she was almost like an alphabetical list. And I, I remember that the first name was a conductor, a music conductor, <laughs> Abado, Claudio Abado. It was literally a list. <laughs> and uh, and then by coincidence she flew to um, Tokyo for a meeting of the Aspen Institute board and she calls me from Tokyo and said I met the man you're going to marry she said this young man he just joined the board his name is Michael Huffington I um, I think that's it he's the one I'm inviting you both to stay with me in San Francisco. We are going to the opening of the opera. This is it. It turned out to be it. It turned out to be it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. That's amazing. So what was Michael doing at his life when you met him? So Michael, uh, his father was an oil man, what they call a wild cutter. His father was the first... American to discover oil in Indonesia. Oh, wow. Um, he had um, been to Stanford and Harvard and uh, had worked in his own investment bank and had just joined his father's company. Um, and um, he and I hit it off right away. And, you know, I mean, you know, I, I really believe there is something when you are meant to have children with someone, as you and your wife. I mean, I, I read about the story in the limo. Yes. Uh, tell us the story. Come on. I'm turning the tables on you, Rich. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, well, I agree with what you're saying. And I did tell my wife the second I met her I was going to marry her. And then you hear that story from a lot of other people. And I think that it's probably not cliche or a line that people say just to anyone. And even if I had said it to someone before, I meant it when I met Jana. I remember meaning it. And I remember feeling something different. And I can consciously point to it. And we're still married. And I definitely agree that you probably also with that, especially as people get a bit older, and especially in today's day, meet someone who you feel like you should have children with, who may yeah. not necessarily be the same person that you see yourself living the rest of your life with. And it's a different thing. Clearly it's great when it's both. And at times it is both, et cetera, but I do. And, and Jan and I met in a limo, a friend introduced us. The evening wasn't supposed to happen. And she took two years before she felt the same way. And that I think happens too. Like the stars can't always be aligned at the same time. I just, I had the persistence at that age, not as much in business, but I knew I had to go get my wife, the person I was supposed to have kids with. So Yes, and, I, and you know, your marriage worked out long term. Mine didn't. But, you know, we are great friends and we have our two daughters. So I feel, you know, once you have children with someone, somehow it was meant to be. For sure. And you are an incredible mom. And I think the world of you, because people talk about their kids a lot when they're very young. 
and they show you pictures and you got to kind of give them the nudge. Like, I don't need to see pictures of the kids anymore. It's a lot. <laughs> but then you get older and it's like, especially someone as successful as you. But every time I speak to you and I ask you what's going on, you lead with your children. And I yes. think that's and very I beautiful. pictures of them, Rich, even though. <laughs> I, you can't. Well, you can. You're a real friend. Real friends I want to see. But, you know, I remember, Gianni, you know this, like the first guy who has kids are in the club. They show you the picture. It's you're out. You're like, I get it. It's adorable. But hold on. I, I have to chime in from my perspective because I love it when people like are just so proud of their kids and that's what they want to talk about versus like some people, they get a past certain age and they want to act like their kids. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not it. Yes, Be, exactly. Live through your kids. Well, Ariana, every time I ask her, mentions her daughters. I've had the opportunity to meet them both at different times. Just, it's amazing. So I wanted to point that out. Um, and let's thank your ex-husband for helping you bring these two beautiful children into the world. But also I realized that that is how you got into politics, which I knew about, but I didn't know as much about. And then you ran for governor of California, which I also knew but for some reason, we never spoke about because you know I would probably have asked you like a million <laughs> <laughs> questions. So I won't ask you a million, but did you ever, like, have you thought at all what would have happened if you had won that election? You know, um, I learned so much from that very short campaign because it was a recall campaign and it was just over a month and I was running as an independent. You know, I, I have written a lot of political books after the Picasso biography including a book that I have to send you, actually. I don't think I've given it to you, Please. called Third World America. I was always passionate about what was happening to those left behind, the growing inequalities that we now talk more about. Uh, that was always a passion of mine. So when there was this opportunity to run as an independent without having to have a primary, I threw my hat in the ring. And the most important part of the campaign, which is something great to, to stress, especially to a lot of young people listening who are sometimes afraid to try something because they may fail, that if we look back at our life, out of failures come amazing things. So my running for governor was obviously a failure. But I learned the most amazing stuff about how the whole conversation was moving online. L literally, if I had not run for governor, I don't know if I would have had the idea to launch the Huffington Post. Wait, tell I us about this. That, let me give you an example. I was running against Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I had made a big uh, thing about climate change and driving a hybrid car, you know, I was driving a little hybrid Toyota, which now, you know, nothing. But at the time, it was like a big deal. Um, and of course, Schwarzenegger was driving a Hummer, and he was all about SUVs. And so we did a little cartoon online. We didn't have a lot of money as a campaign. We did a little cartoon called The Hybrid versus The Hummer. And then it went crazy. It went crazy viral, and it was like a full page in the LA Times. Wow. And stories in the, on the Today Show and Good Morning America. So I saw this is crazy. I mean, we spent a few thousand dollars, did something online, and now mainstream media are picking it up, how the world was changing. Yeah. And uh, so 
that really helped solidify for me how the whole conversation was moving online and how there wasn't any real uh, site which had respect um, which could bring in both well-known and not well-known people online. Yeah. And do you know who who ran my campaign? Oh, God, I don't think I ever told you that. Van oh, Jones. Really? Look so at that. He and I have been friends ever since. And um, anyway, it was an amazing short-lived experience that led uh, two years later to the founding of the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post, which is kind of like as as we have started to build boardroom in the digital media space in a lot of ways, I think the Huffington Post is held on this like Mount Rushmore of these digital media companies that had like the ultimate of what the trajectory seems to be, which is you build this brand and you build this following and you build this point of view and you build an audience and then a bigger cable company or media business comes and absorbs it. But Huffington Post started before there was really any of this. There was no model for, okay, let me create this, put it online, have multiple verticals, put out a podcast. There was none of that conversation. So what was digital media? And I, and I saw you were inspired or someone in my office actually pointed it out. He came running up to me and he was like, I want you to ask Ariana if it's true that the Drudge Report had a lot to do with inspiring her to create the Huffington Post. Uh, because you did then become a Democrat, I read, right? And I can't even believe I read up on you because you're my friend. Um, <laughs> but what was the vision for Huffington Post at the time and what was kind of the landscape of digital media? Well, you know, at the time, the di digital media was held in contempt. It was basically blogger. And remember, it was the idea of... Uh, bloggers being uh, people who couldn't get a job, uh, blogging in their pajamas from their parents' basement. That was like the, <laughs> that was the mythology. And we elevated blogging. We launched um, May 7th, 2005 with blogs from Walter Cronkite, Larry David, Ellen DeGeneres, Nora Ephron, you know, just an amazing array of incredible people who could have written for the New York Times. So suddenly we said, hey, writing online doesn't mean you can't be published in a major newspaper. It means that life is easier to just write something. You see it immediately on. And then something incredible happened. Um, they re it was revealed who Deep Throat was. And Nora Ephron, who had been married to Carl Bernstein, was invited everywhere to speak about that. And she calls me up and she says, you know what? I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm just going to write about it on the Huffington Post. And she demonstrated some. She said, I don't want to put makeup on and go to CNN. So she wrote this piece. It was everywhere. She didn't have to go on CNN because they kept quoting it and the New York Times was quoting her. So it was like a case study of how the world had changed. That, it's incredible because that's just the way digital media is now and it's forever evolving and then you break stories. Traditional media is almost an, 
is what is unique. And that's what's kind of different and, and so rarely used. When you started, though, and you started putting this together, obviously you brought a network into the equation of all of this access to people. But still, to build an audience, it's more than that, right? And I think that even at that time, it was more than that. When did it start? Like, was it a was it a quick build? Like, did audience come quickly, or was there a real kind of journey that the Huff Post took that no one really knows? Like, kind of some detours or pivots along the way. Well, you know what was fascinating is that from the beginning, I knew that I wanted us to also do investigative journalism and do all the things that mainstream media were known for, and we ended up winning a Pulitzer etc. But also, I, after my collapse from burnout and exhaustion that you know about that I wrote a book called Thrive On um, in April 2007, I started covering all these issues at the Huffington Post. And part of our success, financial and commercial success, was that we were not just a political site. We started covering life. Yeah. And uh, they, we ended up, by the time I left to found Thrive Global in 2016, 50% of our traffic was not coming from politics, but from all these lifestyle issues. So that, you know, allowed us to grow and uh, both internationally and in video and become a, a real media operation. An incredible media operation that ended up selling to AOL. How much money did Huffington Post raise uh, throughout its journey up until the time it was eventually sold? Do you remember those numbers? Very little. Uh, <laughs> I think maybe like just over thirty million, and we sold for three hundred and fifteen million. That's incredible. That's the see. That's the blueprint. That's the blueprint right there. That's incredible. And when you got to AOL, was it different? Did it just feel different? I know you mentioned, I want to talk about your burnout, but what led to that? Did it become a different game or maybe not as fun? No, no, no. I didn't sell to AOL until uh, uh, 2011. My burnout was 2007. It was, more, um, it was more a function of my buying into the founder myth that you know about as a VC yourself. You know, there are far too many founders who buy into the delusion that in order to be amazing and build a great company, they have to sacrifice themselves. They have to burn out. Yeah. And that was really the, that was the, what caused my collapse. Think I was the divorced mother of two Little girls, um, I wanted to be super founder, super mom, and ended up collapsing, which, of course, looking back, was the best thing that could possibly have happened to me. Got it. So in 2007, you have this, and um, did you realize right away, was it one of those things where, like, the falling was just more symbolic of the fact that you knew you, it was time to change or that this wasn't sustainable? Because... I never had an incident like that, but I definitely was trained my generation in seeing entrepreneurs and seeing success stories tell you that they have to work 24 seven. And I didn't find, I think my vision until I started getting a healthier balance. And um, I know that's crucial for everybody, but it is so hard to know that when you're young, when you're getting 
you know, shown a different blueprint and it's changing because of people like you, when you started working differently from that point on, did the company, did you see the success of yourself personally and the company, even before you sold, start to change because of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I um, really want to help the world uh, see that clearly from our different vantage points. You know, your vantage point in sports and uh, with elite athletes is incredibly important because I find when we talk with corporate leaders, um, nothing really moves their minds as much as saying, you know, look at what Kevin says or Tom Brady or Kobe Bryant said or um, about the importance of sleep and what you eat and recovery time and how data shows that recovery time is part of peak performance. Yeah. You know, there is nothing like having a score to show that. It's not like an illusion. Yeah. So I think that we are, in, in a way, uh, in the middle of trying to change the mainstream culture, which still, still um, has this... Um, false belief that uh, if you are not always on, it means you are not uh, really driven and uh, aggressive enough about your work. Yes. Well, I think that it's now, the, you know, the, the environment that's been created around us is on 24-7. So the idea that the access is available 24-7, somebody's always working 24-7 or paying attention to something 24-7, there is a lot of pressure and then addiction. That's what social media will bring to, to staying connected and staying uh, in touch and feeling like you don't miss out on anything. And that's not necessarily work in the office, but you can get equally as burned out from it. Um, I think what happens to people when they get uh, on, you know, on that journey to that goal, it seemed like you then found that kind of balance got to AOL and was even with this balance that you had, was there still like, okay, but this isn't the environment ultimately that I want to be in. Is that why you had to leave your baby? Oh, not at all. No, I mean, I couldn't have been happier um, with how things turned out at AOL. You know, not every acquisition story is a good story, but mine was we, we grew very fast. We were given all the investment we were promised to be in 18 countries, to launch a video operation, to do everything I had wanted to do. I left because I wanted to build a company that would help people go from awareness to action. You know, if I just wanted to keep raising awareness around the importance of sleep, of um, how we eat, how we how we move, et cetera. I could have done that the Huffington Post. Yep. Well, and that's, and that's why I, sorry, but that's why I mentioned what this kind of addiction is and how I feel like while an athlete can say it um, on a platform and an athlete can talk about it and create around it and you can inspire other young entrepreneurs. And I think that we're all, like you said, that is something that we talk a great deal about in every one of our, kind of college seminars that we do through boardroom, we talk about it. But 
you did decide to put the action in place because for all the awareness that there is, if there isn't action and if there isn't somebody challenging, let's just say the system for that matter, we can talk about it forever, but people are ultimately still going to get burned out and still going to find unhappiness in this like ever ever like search for success. So when you leave to go thrive, obviously you've written the book for thrive, but, and we met around the time it was evolving. I know I met you through a mutual friend. Well, I heard about you and your company through a mutual friend, Alan Patrickoff, because Greg Koff had invested, I think, in your seed okay. round. And then we spoke about it at that conference that we talked about, and, and we ended up investing soon after. But I remember the company originally to where it is now has changed a little bit, right? So, Or has, has it been the journey that you expected? Just talk to a little bit about this last four years with Thrive. Well, also, first of all, in the interest of complete transparency, you invested in Thrive. Yeah, no, it's, yes, um, yes. Which, yes. <laughs> which was fantastic. Um, no, the company, the design for the company was always to to launch a product because without technology, you cannot scale. So we always wanted to launch a product that would help people adopt micro steps. You know, we just published a book, I just sent it to you, of micro steps, small incremental daily steps that lead to healthier habits. So the product was always designed to be a collection of micro steps for behavior change, storytelling, ancient wisdom, you know, a way to help us move uh, to a healthier life. We spent the first uh, three years in a laboratory mode, you know, doing hundreds of seminars around the world, collecting information, material, earning revenue. It was great. We were never a pre-revenue startup. But a year ago, we actually launched a product, and it has been amazing because we launched it to 2.2 million associates at Walmart, 500,000 people at Accenture, Salesforce, Levi's, you know, dozens of big companies. And, uh, and it's been incredible because then COVID struck, and ironically, all these issues of well-being and mental health became paramount and central. They were no longer just nice to have. They were essential for productivity and for business metrics. So during the pandemic, and I think a lot of companies that even were in the media space um, were able to kind of grow and accelerate. But for somebody, like you said, that was focused around what became an essential, both in our messaging and also truly people needing it in the desperately, imminently, what did you guys start to do or kind of ramp up? And what was like your mindset during a time where as a founder and CEO of a company and still your own concerns, there is that kind of that purgatory where you had decisions to make, I'm sure of. Oh, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> I mean, we we made some very quick decisions when nobody knew what was going to happen, like we would not let go of anyone. Um, we would support people working remote, of course. But then suddenly, we the demand for what we're doing was so great that we had to keep hiring. I mean, I've hired so many people I have never met. 
And and that is really hard for me because I'm Greek. You know, I have to look you in the eye. I want to break bread. And uh, and I had to meet people over Zoom and decide over Zoom. And, and um, that was the hard part. And the fact that there are so many people I'm working so closely with, like including a chief technology officer whom I have never met. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's the new world. Do you think that remote work is is something that can sustain? Because it, it feels like it may not go hand in hand with some of the principles of the stuff that you've taught because it's tougher to have balance in this like remote world. I, well, I think it's a question of building a new way to live and work. Uh, you know, somebody said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So I hope we can use this crisis as a catalyst um, to change a lot of things that were not working before the crisis. I think we are all going to be living in a hybrid world. It's never going to be the same. But I think more important is developing hybrid skills. Mm -hmm. like a lot of skills like creativity and empathy and ability to collaborate are going to be more and more important. And these are all skills that are the first to go when we are exhausted. Two straight podcasts where our guests, Jimmy Iovine and Ariana Huffington, mentioned the word empathy, which I think if anyone's listening, if any of the same people are listening from last <laughs> week, which I hope they are, Empathy is something that two of the most successful people that we've had on this show or period have said and something to think about, as well as this hybrid thinker, which is the philosophy behind Jimmy's school at USC and the high school or program that he's creating with Dre. The product that you brought to everybody, um, in, and, and I do agree with you on this kind of hybrid world, though I think that as you see some things coming back like school so quickly in some areas and not coming back in other areas that I'm worried that, that we're still not rethinking how to best navigate the new world and that we're so quick to come back to a certain way of doing things. We may miss it, but, um, that's just me digressing. So back yeah. to my question, um, wh what is the product, um, that thrive offers? So it's a platform. Um, that includes an app, but also it's a platform that can be fed into whatever APIs your company has. Because we believe that time when everything has to be just an app, that time is over. A lot of people are tired of having one more app. So we launched at Salesforce, for example, we are powering their wellness platform, we thrive. And also we are bringing it to consumers. So we're never going to be a direct to consumer product, but if you are PNG reaching your consumers, we can be a wellness behavioral layer. Because what people are looking for is quick stress interventions. You know, stress is unavoidable in life, but cumulative stress is avoidable. So my favorite thing in the app, in our Thrive platform, is something based on the latest science that it takes 60 to 90 seconds to course correct from stress. I love that. Wow. So basically, what we've done is we've preloaded 
60 second guides it can be a 60 second breathing guide or stretching or gratitude but also an opportunity to build your own guide i sent you mine after we talked take a look at it 60 seconds it has pictures of my kids my favorite song uh, quotes i love and a breathing pacer and in 60 seconds when you are stressed you are reminded of what you love about your life and you are reminded that life is messy you know if you look at the espn play of the day that's not the game right yeah the game is a lot messier 100 <laughs> percent right well, our lives are a lot messier, and when we learn to accept that, and when the, the obstacles and the challenges happen, we have some way to reconnect with that place that you talked about, the place of calm and peace and strength, then life changes dramatically because we don't let stress to become cumulative. And you know the days when you're fried by the time you end your day? Yeah. And that's when also people move into addictive behaviors because they are trying to unwind, to slow down their brain. And, and that's when the problems start. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That is well said. And I think that um, the idea of someone having an escape has always kind of been referred to in the form of like a glass of wine. You know, like that was the way to have an escape. Um, yeah. And I do think that the need for it and the conversation and a stigma to some degree. I think that there's communities around the country that still have a hard time talking about mental health in a very common conversation the way maybe I could. And I think that that is still a big part of it is that if you can start educating at a young level and let people in some of these more underserved communities, especially understand that having the conversation is actually a sense of strength. And that is where athletes play a very big hand because they're clearly seen in these positions of immense strength and power and success. And then to hear someone like Kevin Love talk about it, it's just the start, but it is really important. So the product for these companies, do these companies like make this more of a mandatory thing for their employees or is it something that is more of a voluntary thing because i would think you you need to get your you company to buy in right yeah but you can't you can never make it mandatory i mean uh, you make it engaging enough that people want to participate and the key here is because a lot of us at thrive come from the media world we know how to produce engaging media as opposed to hr eat your broccoli yeah um you know we know how to produce videos and stories that people want to engage with yeah and, and track the results and share their own stories so that's that's really what we find works and we've had amazing results with purely through these behavioral changes around sleep food movement gratitude we've uh, had the people you know reverse diabetes and and give and not need to take the hypertension medication so what i'm excited about is that we are facing a crisis of skyrocketing diseases diabetes hypertension mental health and we have ignored the behavior layer and you know if you're diabetic and you are taking your diabetes medication 
but you don't take any steps to reduce sugar, sleep enough, reduce stress, it's not going to work. Yep. And that's really the connection we are bringing, both when people already have symptoms, but also preventively. And I, I, you know, it's, it's, I didn't think, I didn't pay enough uh, of an emphasis in saying it. The idea that you did build this kind of like Mount Rushmore of a media company, the messaging you're giving these employees, I would assume, is a, it's a gift, to be honest with you. And I know the kind of content you create. And I think that is what's so rare about it. Why have you not wanted to bring it direct to consumer? Or is it in the business future? Well, because we find that one of the reasons and one of the ways that this works is through community. So if we launch it um, at Accenture, which incidentally you said, is it mandatory? No, it wasn't mandatory, but it had the most engagement of any non-mandatory program Accenture ever launched. Wow. But because we launched with an internal marketing campaign, led by the CEO and an external marketing campaign. So when we launch to consumers, we can do it, for example, through a Walmart's wellness app to consumers or through FemCare's CRM to consumers. And that way, we reduce a lot of the churn, as you know, because you um, you invest a lot of in a lot of apps. There is tremendous churn. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, People sign up, and then three weeks later, they stop using it. So we find that when you launch to a community, there is a much greater um, likelihood that you're going to stay with it. I, I think that's amazing. And I think you start to feel like it's, like you said, it's something that you're a part of as opposed to um, a customer. Yes. Which, um, social media companies though like I mean I, I do think that one of the things I remember from your house you showed me like a bed for your phone you would right you had made like a, a cell phone bed or an iPhone bed and the, yeah. I, the idea being that you needed to put your phone to sleep right right I gave you one I don't know if you're using it but I want you to use it for your girls because we built it really as a family phone bed um, it's a charging station for your phones, your wife's phones, your kids' phones. And there's a little blankie. You put your phone under the blankie. You tuck it in because human beings learn through a ritual. And you know how hard it is to separate ourselves from our phones. Yeah. But it's essential if we're going to get a good night's sleep. Um, I love that. And I do, I do remember you gave me the gift. Are you going to be mad at me if I ask for another bed? Yes. Would you like mahogany or light wood? Ooh. Uh, I think light wood right now. I'm going to go a bit but, more. Yeah. Now, your girls don't have a phone yet, right? No, they do. Remember when you interviewed Kevin and I and I said I have no control? I still have no control. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, they need that bad because that's phone hygiene. They need to learn that the phone doesn't sleep with you. I know. I know. And I got to do as you are told not well what is the saying because i don't do that i need to put my phone to bed and my kids yeah phones oh my to bed. god it's going to make such a difference so i'm going to send it uh tomorrow if you send a bunk bed this is four phones 
Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not a bunk bed, but let's launch a bunk bed. I'm ready. Let's, I like. The, I like the bunk bed. Let's launching a bunk bed. I for like si- that for siblings. You know, each kid puts their. I love that. Yeah, let's do it. But but the social media companies. I would assume that you. Sh- I mean, you could go to Twitter and Facebook and these companies. And I know we have to wrap up in a second. But social media and these companies to me, uh, maybe have a responsibility to, along with what they're building and continue to build and the changes they make. And obviously, I think there's great things about social media, but do you feel like you could play a part in helping some of the behaviors that social media maybe have uh, left with all of us? Well, I think social media have a big responsibility. Companies have a big responsibility and each one of us has a responsibility. So I think it's concentric circles. And at the moment, I want to focus on where we can have the maximum impact, which is convincing you and um, Gianni and people who are in charge of their lives. You know, if you and Gianni and me and Libby and everybody has to wait for social media, to be responsible, if we hold our breath, we may just die of asphyxiation. That's we right. need to do whatever we can do right now. Why lobbying and encouraging, etc., companies to do the right thing? But we can't wait for that. You are right. Well, I'm going to do the right thing. Gianni, did she bring that sense of calm that I told you about? Oh, I've been on a cloud the whole conversation. That's what she does. <laughs> That's what she does. Well. Please continue. Please keep continuing to inspire me and many others. I appreciate the conversation. Um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about my friend, and I look forward to uh, continuing to have many more of these. And let's talk about this bunk bed. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rich. Love the Gianni. Look forward to meeting you in person. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. À la prochaine. À la prochaine, à bientôt, à tout à l'heure. À bientôt, ciao. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Wow, Gianni, I told you, man. I told you we had a good one today, right? Oh, my goodness. Just so many gems, just so much to marinate on right now. I know. I kept getting tongue twisted a bit. Not tongue twisted, but because I could look at her. While I was talking, I was like, oh, shit. I also just thought of so many things to ask. Like, wait, she's on the board of Uber. Like, she thought, I like how she brought up this point about how, like, these company leaders and how they rely on athletes. No, 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 I understand. Well, I think these athletes are playing a big part for a lot of these companies, I think, in getting this message out because it's such a focused message amongst professional sports now. Um, but I but I liked her answer, and it's kind of what I wanted her to say about why she ultimately had to leave the Huffington Post, which is that um, talking about it and telling the story about the conversation is different than doing something about it and creating something. Um, yep, she said, what, what was it? I wanted to stop the awareness and start to create some action. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. And no, and I am I'm happy that we uh, we were able to invest in the company, and I actually think that as our company gets bigger, it'd be cool if we um, we utilize something like this, man. Absolutely. Yes. Um, all right, man. Well, number 37 in the books. That's how we do. That's how we do. Appreciate the time. I want everyone to subscribe. 
Go to boardroom.tv, download our podcast. It's on all the podcast providers. Everyone knows that, though. But have a good rest of your day. Uh, thanks for listening. Out of office, boardroom. We'll be back next week. See you next week. Peace. Peace.